Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech and offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Tom Quinn, Head of Analysis and Insights at ORE Catapult, the UK's leading innovation and research centre for offshore renewables. Backed by popular demand, I'm here with some of our Analysis and Insights team as we review the biggest developments in offshore renewable energy in 2022 and make our predictions of what could be in store for this year. 2022 is a year for the history books, with the world's economies rebuilding after COVID-19, alongside energy security threats, political instability and a cost of living crisis. It's also been an important year for offshore renewable energy, with several key announcements made and milestones achieved in our journey to achieve net zero. Listening to the podcast with me today is Ken Kazriel, our energy economist. Ken joined us staff last year after a two-year collaboration with my predecessor, Gavin Smart, creating a course on offshore wind economics for complete beginners. At the time, he was coming from a background as an oil and gas project valuations practitioner, auditor, author and teacher. Originally a journalist, including for The Economist Group, he asked good questions and explains things pretty plainly. Glad to have him as a great addition to both our team and the podcast. So I'm asking my colleague, Analysis and Insights Manager Cholton Bannister, about two related UK matters. One is the freshly announced 45% windfall income tax, which will be levied on certain renewable generators in the UK. And number two, wearing several jumpers as I record this, what might be the mood of a public facing likely unprecedentedly high power prices next winter after the emergency rate cap ends in April? And what might that mean for UK market reforms? Far away. Okay. As for the first, some of the industry response to the windfall tax, which runs from January 2023 to March 2028, has sounded pretty scalded. Is it really that bad? Well, I think the industry's response that it could torpedo future investment in UK renewables, and offshore wind in particular, might well be a bit of a stretch. For one, it's not really that severe. And also, it doesn't impact the bulk of new offshore wind developments planned between now and 2028, when the tax ends. As for the windfall tax itself, now surprise tax revisions are never welcome in principle. But in this case, they don't look nearly as bad as the industry complaints in the press might indicate. Starting in January, it will apply when a generator gets a power price of more than £75 per megawatt hour. To put this into context, roughly speaking, there are two kinds of offshore wind generators in the UK. The first kind sell power at a fixed price indexed to inflation for a long period, 15 years or so after the project has been initiated. This scheme is called the Contracts for Differences, or CFD. Since 2017, all new green-lighted projects use CFDs. For reference, the latest round of agreed CFD prices this summer were around £44 per megawatt hour in today's money. That is nominal terms. That sounds reasonably far from the £75 tax threshold you mentioned. Yeah, and nowhere near the cost of gas-powered generation these days of around £250 per megawatt hour. Now, CFDs have done a fantastic job of providing the sort of guaranteed price certainty for long enough to make these massive wind farms bankable. Indispensable, really. And this leads to a major point. The windfall tax rules explicitly exempt these CFD players. A crucial mechanism has not been tampered with. If it had been, then yes, people should be howling, but it's been left alone. Okay, well, that's nice, but 
Those are only the ones who got their CFD prices agreed since 2017. They're exempt, but what portion of the UK's offshore wind base are they? Based on our calculations from capacity data from 4C Offshore and our own capacity factor assumptions, around 60% of offshore wind generation today is exempt from the tax. And we think that could grow to 80% of generation by the time the windfall tax ends in 2028. So it doesn't sound like the whole ox is getting gored here. No, not at all. It's only the second main kind of offshore wind generator which will be impacted by the windfall tax. And even then, it sounds like an exaggeration to say they'll be getting gored. This second type of offshore wind generators doesn't have CFDs. They use what's called the Renewable Obligation Certificates, or ROCs. They are able to sell power on a merchant basis, meaning according to UK market rules, under which the highest cost supplier to the market sets the price which will be received by all non-CFD generators, the so-called order of merit. It means, for example, that when the weather lowers the supply of wind and solar enough, gas-fired generation is need to balance the grid. And the high price of gas means this generation sells for, say, £250 per megawatt hour, as we are seeing this year and very likely to keep seeing in 2023. Then all generators, except the CFD players, selling at that time receive £250 per megawatt hour. The ROC suppliers receive the £250, and in addition to this, their ROC payment, or £52. The thing is, the ROCs have much lower operating costs, including transmission to the shore, which we'd estimate to be around £35 to £45 per megawatt hour in 2022 and 2023. So there's £35 to £45 in costs versus £250 in revenue. That's quite a gulf. Well, yeah. Wind farms don't run on expensive gas. Using less fossil fuels to run the grid is the whole point. And low costs have always been part of renewable energy sales pitch. But frankly, some of these ROC players have been doing extremely well by earning gas link prices, which have rocketed, while their costs haven't. I must say that fits at least my gut level definition of a windfall profit. Yeah, pretty much. Now, the windfall tax will kick in where their received price exceeds £75. The rate appearing in the headlines is 45%, which might mislead you to think that that becomes an extra tax on all profit. No, it applies only to the portion relating to the excess over £75. Anything under that would get taxed normally. That threshold, again, is quite comfortably above those estimated mid-30s, mid-40s per megawatt hour operating costs. So in parallel to the potential for market changes, another trend is that meanwhile, there's a lot of continuing focus from the industry and of course, including the catapult on innovation and cost reduction. What we often say is that for these things to happen, one thing we need is to get turbines in the water so that learning can occur and economies of scale and local supply chains can emerge. So on the offshore wind deployment front, let's hear from Tom about what's happened in the last year and what we might see happening this year and the next in the UK. Tom? So let's compare new ambitions to new achievements. We can take a look at UK offshore wind deployments using Renewable UK's Energy Pulse platform, which I'm a big fan of. We had the UK government energy security strategy launched with new targets of 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2050, including five gigawatts of floating. 50 total of which five floating versus what, 
what do we have at the moment? Well, we started 2022 with around 11.5 gigawatts total. That provides around 12% of total UK generation from all sources, and only a small bit, around 70 megawatts of floating. Then we had around 2 gigawatts of bottom-fixed capacity commissioned. So Horn C2, the world's biggest operational offshore wind farm, made up most of that. The rest included contributions from some of Moray East, Triton Knoll, and Sea Green coming online. So now we have about 13.5 gigawatts operational. So we added just two gigawatts last year. Yeah, and 2023 looks a bit disappointing with only around another 1.5 gigawatts expected to be installed. We need a run rate of around four and a half gigawatts per year to be installed to reach 50 gigawatts by the end of 2030. Well, is there anything coming up this year that might help pick up the pace? Yes, there is. But to look forward, let's first look back at some seeds which were planted last year. The really big news of the year was the Scotland leasing round a massive 27.6 gigawatts of capacity uh, awarded seabed agreements, including nearly 18 gigawatts of floating. 18 gigawatts or 18,000 megawatts. That compares to a global total of around 150 megawatts for all currently operating wind farms. So 18,000 megawatts is pretty unprecedented for floating wind, right? It is. Now, we're unlikely to see all of this following through to construction, particularly before 2030, but it's a major signal of intent. We'll start to see these projects moving through the development stages, with the first projects coming online around 2028 at the earliest. Beyond Scotland, there's a tender this summer for several areas in the Celtic Sea, again with a focus on floating wind. Developers are lining up and working on supply chain investment plans, which are required as part of the bid. We're expecting to see four gigawatts awarded, made up of four one gigawatt projects. Also, contracts for different allocation rounds starting last year are being run annually, which might help relieve some short-term bottlenecks. The next round, allocation round five, is due to be awarded around this coming May. And we'll have a bit more on that later in the podcast. There's another thing which is not really going to move the needle when it comes to deployment, but is very interesting nonetheless, is the INTOG leasing round. INTOG. For the benefit of our listeners, and, well, me actually also, but don't tell anyone, can you explain what INTOG is? Sure. INTOG is a special leasing round that's trying to solve two main issues. First, the IN bit of INTOG stands for innovation. Scotland has a 2045 target for net zero, and we'll need technological solutions to get there. The hope is that by providing an opportunity for developers to test new ideas on small projects under 100 megawatts, We'll have a relatively low risk but potentially high reward test bed, hopefully in time for some Scotland projects to benefit. The total limit on capacity for this part of the round is 500 megawatts. 500 megawatts. So for context, that's what? Well, Hornsey 2, the world's biggest operational wind farm, is around 1,300 megawatts, so 1.3 gigawatts. Okay. What kinds of innovations? Well, the Crown Estate Scotland, which is basically the seabed landlord here, defines innovation as projects which support cost reduction in offshore wind, including alternative outputs such as hydrogen. Now, that's pretty vague, and no doubt intentionally so, as it isn't looking to stifle innovation. It also allows for projects which develop Scotland as a destination for innovation, which can reduce risk and provide opportunities for the supply chain. Okay, so if innovation is the in-bit of in-tog, what's the tog? Tog means targeted oil and gas. The goal here is to try and boost the decarbonisation of Scotland's offshore oil and gas assets. Scotland produces around 95% of the UK's oil. 
and two-thirds of its gas. So I'd reckon we're talking about a fair amount of CO2, no? Yeah, North Sea oil and gas contributes around 3% of the UK's emissions. That's 14 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent per year. The hopes that by powering these platforms using floating wind, we can cut back on some of these emissions. Crown Estate Scotland's capped capacity for this round at 5.7 gigawatts. So we may see some larger wind farms planned, which can power oil and gas assets until the end of their life, potentially feeding into the grid after that. 5.7 gigawatts, it's pretty chunky. Okay, but just while we're here, in a nutshell, is it straightforward to power oil and gas rigs with wind? The quick answer is no. For the long answer, we have a detailed paper on our website. Ah, come on, you wrote it. Give us at least the elevator summary. Sure, okay. First, you have to find an oil and gas asset, or more likely a group of platforms, which have more than 10 years of production left. Otherwise, there isn't much point. Second, you need to provide an attractive solution for the oil and gas operators. It needs to beat cables to shore or the option of doing nothing. And third, North Sea oil and gas platforms are mostly old, and each has a unique electrical interface. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Platforms require a reliable power supply, so we'll need fossil fuel backups, and you also need to consider heating and other forms of power. So we could end up placing wind farms next to oil and gas platforms in what may be a suboptimal site for wind resource and distance from shore. There's a risk of solving a short-term problem and being left with a long-term problem of wind farms that are less productive and more expensive to maintain. And these leases last for 50 years. So it's not necessarily a move fast and break things scenario. So what's the timeline like for these? The latest piece of news on Intog is that 19 applications have been submitted, with 10 for innovation and 9 targeting oil and gas. The leasing round is expected to be closed in 2024. Then the sites can start competing for CFDs. So could these maybe start competing for the same CFD funds against Scotwind projects? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Yes, the projects might well compete. But there might also be an opportunity to integrate Intox sites with Scotland projects, meaning we could see projects sharing substations or export cables. Oil and gas assets need reliable power supplies, so this could be a route to connecting assets to the grid and Intog wind farms back to shore. So whether in competition or in cooperation, we might well see the first projects online around the same time as Scotland. Which would be when? Sometime towards the end of the 2020s. If we manage to accelerate the consenting period, we could see the first projects online around 2027. But there's plenty of work to do to put Scotland in a position to both deploy multiple gigawatt-scale wind farms and maximise benefits to the local economy. You say there's plenty of work to do. Does that include facilities? It's fairly widely agreed that ports will act as hubs around which the supply chain can grow. Some ports require hundreds of millions of pounds of investment to enable them to facilitate fabrication, marshalling and assembly of offshore wind farm components. This is especially important for floating wind foundations, which are huge, heavy pieces of kit. So what happens if we don't have suitable ports for all this work? Projects can still be developed and deployed, but we risk losing jobs and economic prosperity to yards overseas. However, it's not as simple as throwing lots of money at our ports and reaping the rewards There's also a risk of overbuilding port capacity and not being able to fully utilise them if other barriers around leasing, consenting or grid access holds deployment back. While we need a coordinated approach to infrastructure development, ports also need to be able to justify investments on an individual basis. Now, I don't want to end on a gloomy note, uh, so we're on the path to lots of clean energy generation, along with lots of jobs. 
there's a lot to do now to make sure we get a great outcome for the country. We've mentioned CFD allocation round five coming up this year. I've got a prediction on that. Okay, so now I'm asking the questions. What's your prediction? Well, first some background. I think we've reached one of those inflection points in offshore wind economics outside China where the pause button has been hit on the historic trend of ever lower costs and so ever lower levelized costs of energy or LCOE and so ever lower power tariffs. In fact, in 2022, we saw some canaries in the coal mine, not limited to Western turbine manufacturers, signaling that costs are rising, and I fully expect to see more of that in 2023. So some forecast models will need revisiting, specifically ones which rely too much on learning curves or experience curves. By this, I mean some forecasts assume renewable energy technology costs always fall over time in a nice, smooth fashion the more units you produce. It assumes industries get more cost-efficient by learning by doing. This reduction in costs is forecast using what's known as an assumed learning rate, which generates these gently or sometimes steeply downward-sloping forecasts. The problem with pure learning curves or experience curves is that they ignore other factors which can disrupt those smooth declines, namely external events which change the cost of inputs as determined by commodity price and other economic cycles. But in fact, commodity prices and interest rates have soared compared to where they were pre-COVID. The fact that some commodity prices are now back down to where they were before the Russian invasion of Ukraine shouldn't obscure the fact that they're still much higher than pre-COVID. For example, from their March 2020 peaks through to the 2nd of January 2023, hot-rolled coiled steel is up 35%. Copper is up 77%. European gas... I read it was down to pre-Ukraine invasion levels. It is, but at around 72 euros per megawatt hour, it's still up sevenfold versus pre-COVID. And the likely long-term dry-up of cheap Russian gas could make matters worse for big European OEMs, or original equipment manufacturers, of turbines, foundations, substations, etc. So, basically, we seem to be in a new era of high raw material costs. Borrowing costs also shot up last year. Yep. That not only means many offshore wind developers have to pay higher interest rates, but also their cost of capital goes up, and therefore their project LCOEs do too. So even if you're learning to be more efficient with what you have to work with, which the industry has done a very admirable job of, if what you have to work with now costs more, then your total costs will maybe fall more slowly than what the experience curve predicts, or they'll flatline, or as we're seeing now, they'll start to rise after a long period of steady falls. Moving from raw material costs to ready product costs, here are a few examples. I'm taking my starting point at 2014 for reasons which will become clear. So to take one poster child of renewables experience curve enthusiasts, lithium-ion battery packs, according to Bloomberg News from 2014 through 2021, 
prices for these fell in real terms at an annual average rate of 16%, but they grew by 5% per annum over 2021 and what's estimated for 2022. Looking at wind turbines, from 2014 through 2019, global prices on the dollar per megawatt hour fell at an annual average of 7%, but then they grew at an annual average of 7% from then through the second half of 2022. This is from a Standard & Poor's Global post. It's worth noting that those figures are global. You can work out from the chart that Chinese turbines have actually gotten much cheaper, meaning non-Chinese ones have gotten more than 7% more expensive per year. You just can't see how much more expensive. Are those offshore turbines only? No, good question. Those were total turbines. There was no onshore-offshore split. But we can see the same sort of thing specific to offshore wind in a third example. This from the U.S. Department of Energy published this summer. They say that from 2014 through 2021, global capacity-weighted offshore wind capex in dollars per megawatt hour fell at an annual average of 9% but they predicted a 13% rise for 2022. I'd note that their editorial cutoff date seems to have been May 2022, so I doubt the full impacts of a no-end-in-sight war in Ukraine scenario are reflected there. So you're seeing all these time series after long, steady falls suddenly bouncing up. So with all this in mind, I wonder whether you'll see that same pattern for UK fixed-bottom offshore wind contracts for differences strike prices from 2014... Uh-oh. I think I can see where this is going. ...up through the new maximum set last month by the government for CFD allocations this year. So, from 2014 through 2021, announced CFD administrative strike prices... That is, the maximum the government will allow developers to receive for their power fell at an annual average of 14%. That left them at £46 per megawatt hour in 2012 real sterling. But the Round 5 administrative fixed-bottom offshore wind strike prices announced last month for this year's bidding are... Not bouncing up. Not bouncing up. They're 4% lower at 44 pounds. So, a prediction for 2023. Developer response to the new strike price of 44 pounds will be more muted than in previous rounds. By that, I mean fewer bidders and or less acreage bid for and or lower prices that they'll actually bid. And by that, I mean how far below the state's maximum of 44 pounds will they bid to get these CFDs? In past rounds, for example in 2017, some developers won by being willing to accept a price around 45% below the maximum. In 2019, they were accepting as little as 29% below the max. Last year, they accepted 19% below, bidding £37 versus the max of £46. So you've been seeing a decreasing discount to the max. That's not too surprising when the max itself falls so much. It can only go so low in absolute terms. But also, as Gavin and I mentioned in our podcast last July, when the cost pressures you mentioned were already becoming evident, 
But before interest rates shot up, those £37 bids already looked pretty aggressive. Questionably so, given both inflation and the need to have money left over to invest in additional capacity and or supply chain. Yeah. So I'm going to go out on a limb of predicting that the margin between this year's maximum of £44 and the resultant bids will shrink, maybe even to 0%, meaning no one will accept less or much less than £44. I expect that and or fewer bids. We'll hold you to that. Okay. Apart from your CFC predictions, anything else for the sector? For one, I, I mentioned the big European OEMs, Siemens Gamisa, or now just Siemens, and Vestas. They dominate the offshore turbine market and have been on their knees, reporting multi-million euro operating losses for each reported quarter up to Q3 of last year. Now they're pushing back, saying that they'll focus less on market share and more on profitability. Basically, we're seeing and will continue to see this year a contest to transfer cost risk from these Western OEMs to developers and from developers to ratepayers. So I'd expect to see OEMs insist more on cost plus type provisions in contracts. I also wouldn't be surprised to hear calls for protectionist measures for these European OEMs, perhaps on too strategic to fail grounds. In which case, I'd expect to see in response at least the threat of WTO disputes or bilateral retaliation. And very lastly, I promise, I also expect to see China's OEM giant, Mingyang, which seems to be in much better shape than the Westerners, and so more able to compete on price, to continue, as it has last year, seeking inroads into the European market. Last year, it made a small 32-megawatt total capacity sale for a Celtic Sea floating wind project. I also wouldn't rule out someone, somewhere, rightly or wrongly, kicking up a fuss about Ming Yang on economic nationalist or even national security grounds. We've been focusing on offshore wind generators. Now, let's turn to where we are and what to look out for in the UK's tidal energy segment from Dr. Kieran Frost, a techno-economic analyst for strategy and emerging technologies here at the Catapult. Kieran? Thanks, Ken. Well, the thing I would reflect on first when talking about marine energy is what a fantastic year we've had in 2022. So really, the tidal stream industry has gone from a point where it had very little access to revenue support to a really strong commercial endorsement from the UK government. Um, Previously, it was kind of frozen out of the UK market because developers just couldn't get the revenue support via the financial subsidy to support their projects. But in 2022, we had a bit of a breakthrough in that the UK government announced a £20 million per annum funding ring fence for the sector in the contracts for differences around this past summer. From this, there were four new projects totaling 40.8 megawatts that were announced. A £20 million per year ring fence. What's that? So a ring fence is a dedicated pot of money set aside for tidal stream marine energy projects only. So a guaranteed amount of funding. This effectively means that tidal projects are competing against each other only, not against other technologies. So the last tidal energy CFD round set aside £20 million a year for around 41 megawatts of capacity. 
How big a deal is 41 megawatts in a UK tidal energy context? Yeah, it's a good question. So for some context, at the moment in the UK, we have about 10 megawatts of tidal projects that are generating electricity. So to put this into context, this 10 megawatts is equivalent to about 7,000 households. But the new 41 megawatts, we're five times in that total capacity. So it's quite a significant increase. So effectively, 20 million pounds per year buys you those new 41 megawatts of capacity. Yeah, that's correct. Now, what's interesting is about how the bidding came in. The government said the administrative strike price, meaning the highest fixed tariff it would award anyone, was £211 per megawatt hour. The thing to note is that's in 2012 terms, as is the custom in the CFD. £211. That compares with an administrative strike price of £46 for offshore wind, also in 2012 terms, in that same allocation round. Yeah, it does sound high compared to offshore wind, because the tidal stream is an emerging industry. But the interesting thing, as I flagged, was the bidding, as it was actually quite a lot lower than many predicted. The administrative strike price was £211 per megawatt hour, but the bidders say they can deliver power for a cheaper tariff of £178 per megawatt hour, which is actually 15% below where the government saw the costs coming in. So these were private bids coming in lower than the government ceiling, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh Uh-huh. So could you take that as a sign of confidence that they'll be off the training wheels at some point, so to speak? Yeah, exactly. And the thing to note as well is that there were four individual projects that secured these CFDs, and the 178 is the maximum bid of the four. So although we don't know the specific bids, chances are that three of those projects actually came in below the 178. So yeah, the 178 is actually the maximum of the four projects that were awarded CFD. Okay, four projects. May I ask, where are these? Yeah, sure. So three of the projects are up in Scotland, up near Orkney. The other one is off the coast of Anglesey in Wales, the Morlice site. So generally in the UK, the best tidal stream sites are in Scotland because the resource is so good. But there is really good coverage across the UK and Northern Ireland. It it really is a UK-wide industry. Looking ahead, have you got any bold predictions for us for tidal stream? Well, in the industry, attention really at the moment is focused on the next CFD allocation round, which is known as AR5. In December, the government released the administrative strike prices which was £202 per megawatt hour for tidal stream and 245 for wave. Both these technologies are in pot two, so we're effectively competing with floating wind among other technologies. So the tidal administrative strike price of £202 set last month is lower than the £211 one set last summer, right? Yes, that's correct. And, and really, you can see this as a sign that the government anticipate falling costs. The tidal industry is really keen to secure another ring fence budget to guarantee that projects can get CFDs. My understanding is that Bayes are supportive of this ring fence and it's currently with the Treasury to decide. My bold prediction is that Tidal Stream will be given another ring fence allocation of £20 million. Well, fingers crossed. But how much capacity would this buy? So it must be said that the AR4 projects that won CFDs this summer benefited from some historic investment. So, for example, in the development activities, consenting, the transmission infrastructure. So this isn't necessarily guaranteed for the next projects in AR5. But despite this, I think we could still see a a slightly lower strike price in something like the £160 per megawatt hour range compared to the 178 last time. 
and this would buy about 50 megawatts of new tidal stream capacity. Well, we're going to hold you to that. We know where to find you. <laughs> now, uh, when will the winners be announced? Well, in March, we'll get more details on the budget allocation, and this will tell us whether tidal stream has got the ring fenced. Um, and then after that, developers have to put in bids by April, and we should find out who is successful by late summer or early autumn. Any other predictions? Well, looking internationally, another key market is France. There are two projects being developed there by HydroQuest and Normandy Hydro-Liens, which we've been supporting at the Catapult. We've been supporting it through the EU-funded project called the Tidal Stream Industry Energizer Project, known as Tiger. These projects are targeting final investment decision next year for projects commissioning in 2025-26. My understanding is that conversations with the French authorities have been positive, and I predict that at least one of these projects will secure a feed-in tariff next year. Hopefully both. Well, sounds like a lot to watch out for for marine energy. Let's see how your predictions pan out in this new year. Until then, thanks for dropping by the sleek new Catapult Studios, Dr. Frost. <laughs> My pleasure. That's a wrap on our first episode of 2023. It's now time to de-energize. In the meantime, listeners can find out more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult. And now we're on Instagram at ORE.catapult. <laughs>